Thank you, guys. How we doing, everybody? Hey, good to see you all. Um, who was here last year? For, who was a senior in high school last year? Anybody? Yes? Okay. I recognize you. And you guys were here, right? No? At the camp? Maybe? So, not, well, yes, not here. Yeah, with the church, though. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. All right, awesome way to start. Um, no. <laughs> good to meet you guys. Uh, my name's Dana Dill. I'm from uh, Southern, Southern California down in Orange County. I live in San Clemente, uh, right by Laguna Beach, if you're familiar with that, uh, that area. And it's my uh, pleasure to be here with you this weekend. Uh, my goal this weekend is super simple. I just want to open the scriptures. I want to read them. I want to help do my best to explain them, do my best to apply them, and then just let God's word do God's work, uh, not only in your hearts, but in my heart uh, as well. Um, but before we get into that, for those of you who... Uh, weren't here, uh, or weren't not here, but over in Silver Spear High School, didn't know me last year. Um, I'd love to just show you a couple pictures of uh, some family members of mine. And so this is my wife. That's a super really fuzzy, small uh, picture. But that's my wife uh, right there, uh, Shauna, Shauna Dill. We met um, in high school, actually, my freshman year. And then we started dating around junior year of high school and uh, got married in 2010 and have been married now for uh, coming on nine years, almost a decade. Wow. That's, that's incredible. That's a big deal. Um, yeah, so we've known each other for a long time. She is uh, the delight of my life. And uh, three years ago, God gave us our first daughter. That's Daisy Jane, uh, Daisy Jane Dill right there. And uh, she looks, she's got the same hair as me, spitting image of me. Um, I can't wait till her beard grows in to see how much we really look, look alike. Uh, so she's three years old right now. And then uh, a little bit after her, we had our second daughter. That's Penny Lane. Uh, which, if you're a classic rock fan, um, Daisy Jane is a song by the rock band America, uh, better known for the song, I've Been Through the Desert on a Horse with No Name. Uh, so that's Daisy Jane and then Penny Lane, obviously, with the Beatles. I had no idea that those were uh, classic rock songs when I had named my daughters that. I remember holding Penny in the um, hospital, and I'm holding little Penny Lane, and then the, the nurse kind of rolls in. She's like, so who's the Beatles fan? And I'm like... I don't know. <laughs> and so she she pulled out her phone and you know, played the song. I'm like, oh, I recognize that song, but uh, I didn't know it was actually called Penny Lane. So, uh, and also in other news, um, the Lord's actually given us a third child uh, coming up in March. And so we have number three on the way. We have no idea what it is, boy or girl. Uh, we like to wait and um, I like to be able to announce it, you know, to the room, to the doctors and the nurses. Uh, the first time I tried to do that, I was so overcome with emotion. Like I cried the whole way through. My, my wife's first pregnancy, she actually had to tell me to get it together. Like, no joke. She's like, you need to either like walk, go for a walk and get it together because I need you to be here, you know, for me. And so uh, I remember when I was able to call out, you know, oh my gosh, it's a girl. And my wife was like, what is it? And I'm like, I had this idea. It's like, it's a girl, you know, and then the trombones start playing and the flutes and the, you know, and I'm just like, it's a girl. <laughs> just completely overcome with emotion. It didn't work out the way I wanted to. Uh, the third time, though, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go for that big, strong uh, announcement. So camp is a, uh, a fun time. So it's a unique time uh, as uh, Christian, right? Is that Christian? Yes, Christian. As Christian was saying, um, it's a unique time to get away from the daily grind, get away from the daily scenes, uh, ho and hopefully have some time of just undistracted focus upon the Lord. But when it comes to camps, if you're like me, you have some really special memories attached to the word camp. Uh, I did youth ministry for over 10 years at junior high and uh, high school. 
And I have some unique memories that just pop up into my mind whenever I hear the word camp. Like, for instance, when I first started working in youth ministry, I was just a small group leader um, of a bunch of junior high boys. And so we had the great idea of taking a bunch of junior high boys over to Catalina Island. It's an island uh, down in Southern California to go camping. And we did. And we had one, you know, one rule. We said, you know, uh, go ahead, explore, kind of, you know, to be your junior high selves, climb on trees and things. Just don't bring fire outside the fire pit. That was like the one rule, right? Like don't bring, and we'd say it all the time. I like tattooed it on their faces. Just don't do it. But of course, one day me and the other co-leader uh, were, were there. We're like at the camp and we're just kind of hanging out. And all of a sudden the kids are playing out somewhere. And for some reason they sent the huskier student uh, just running back and he's just, <laughs> Dana, Dana, man. And he's running back and he's, fire, fire, and he's just sweating, poor guy, about to like just croak and fall over, so we go down there, what did they do? They took the fire outside the fire pit, and at Catalina Island is California dry brush, I had this image, we just had buckets, I had this image that we were going to light the island on fire, like, you know, that was just it, like, you know, I could see the headline the next day, junior high ministry burns down Catalina, Uh, sorry, everybody, it's gone, Um, and so I have that memory, thankfully, we were able to put it out, it didn't, you know, ignite on fire. I think of another camp memory is one time we were um, playing broomball at a winter camp, and so broomball obviously shoes on, you know, uh, uh, the ice, and we're, you know, playing ball and just running around, and, you know, there's always that one kid in the youth ministry that just always does the wrong thing at the exact wrong time, and so we're like, all right, everybody, like, we're all done, and I'm just thinking, yes, no one got hurt, no broken bones, no, you know, bloody anything, we're all good, and all right, let's pack up, get the balls in, and I could just see him from across the court, just this look in his eye, he's like, and I'm like, oh, no, what's about, and, and I was just about to just scream at him. I had no idea what he was going to do. I'm just like, no, stop it. I'm going to punish you, you know, like just threaten him. But I saw his eye, and he just picks up the broom ball, and I'm like, oh, oh, no. And he just thinks it's a great idea to chuck the broom ball across the court into an indiscriminate group of people, right? And so he's like, hi, just, this is a fun idea. And I'm just like, no, and I just, I'm the only person that saw I just watch it sail through, and I'm just like, please, God, please, God, please, God, no. And just like the sea parts, and just one of my one of my leaders, one of my leaders heard me like, no, and he like, hey, what's going on? And just and breaks his nose wide open, blood all over, and I'm just standing there, just looking at my leader bleeding out, just dying, just and I just look in camp memory. Uh, my last camp memory is a different student, a uh, different generation, same kind of student. We were houseboating. Um, you see, you laugh because you have that student all in your mind. You're like, oh, yeah, that kid. Like, he died last year because he's an idiot. <laughs> um, we went houseboating, and we had, you know, the one rule, right? Just don't jump off the houseboat, you know, because there's, like, rails and, and rocks, and, you know, just don't jump off the houseboat. Don't jump off. And all of a sudden, I look over, and I see the student, Sam, on the top of the houseboat, and I see the look in his eye, and he goes over to the edge to jump off the houseboat. He's about to do a gainer. He slips. He falls, doesn't clear the rail below him, nor does he clear the engine behind the boat. So he goes, and then just in the water. And it's like one of those moments where it's so surreal, like everyone's like, did you see that? Like, did you... And they're just like, what should we do? And I was like, the flesh was warring against the spirit in my heart. I'm just like, let him, let him swim. <laughs> Brother needs to learn a lesson. Like, just let him, maybe death will teach him to finally <laughs> listen. <laughs> to. <laughs> 
So when I think of camp, I just think of these, these hilarious stories. I know that you have them uh, as well. That might be a fun thing to do in small groups tonight, maybe share a, uh, a camp story like that. But um, that got me thinking with the theme this week, as Josh said, is, is uh, we're talking this weekend about the gift of God and how the greatest gift that God can give us is not his stuff, but it's himself. It's not even forgiveness. It's not grace. It's not uh, even peace or joy. Those are, those, those are all amazing gifts. They're precious gifts. They're wonderful gifts. The greatest gift that God has to give us through Christ is himself. Because there's nothing to know one better than him. Amen? And so he can't give us a gift that's better than him. But that should cause us to ask a question. If God is the infinite source of all good, and he is what we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ, then just like how I look at those students with those camp memories, as I look at those students, and I just want to ask this question, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Right, when you see those students, like, what's wrong with you? You and I, as we look at the world, may ask the same question. If God is the source of infinite good, then what the heck is wrong with the world that he's created? Because there's a disconnect between saying that we serve an almighty, infinitely good God, and then we read the newspaper, and we see a world that is lost. Like the song said, a world that is running a hell-bound race. And so that should cause us to ask the question to the world, what's wrong with you? If God is the greatest gift, the gift of God, we have it by his grace, then why is the world not as it should be? Now, there's a lot of different answers that people give today and have given throughout history when they look at the world and they ask the question, what's wrong with the world? There's some people that say, well, the the reason the world is like it is is because there's lack of education. Namely, they look at the world and they say, it's because of what we don't have that the world is like it is. And so if we just were able to get education, people would know better, they'd treat each other nicer, and the world would be a lot better place. But the problem is, usually in this world, when education happens, all it does is it makes people way better at being evil, right? And it's, they're better at hiding it, they're better at doing it, they're better at, it almost causes more damage. So some people say, well, it's lack of education. Other people would say, well, the world's like it is because not of what we don't have, but because what we do have is poverty. We just have poverty everywhere. And if we were able to just kind of distribute the goods and let everybody just eat and drink and have shelter and and basic funds, then every problem in the world would take care of itself. Other people would look at the world and say, no, it's actually because we're blurring our morals. We've lost sight of, of what morality actually is, of right and of wrong. And so it's we've confused our morals. That's why the world is like it is. And other people would look and say, no, it's because we stopped praying in schools, right? Or we took the Ten Commandments out of the courtyards because we've stopped doing religious practices in the public sphere. That's the reason why the world is is going to hell in a handbasket. And so when we look at the world and we say, what's wrong with the world? There's a lot of answers the world gives, but none of those answers, though they're connected, none of those answers or the answer the Bible gives to that question. You see, when you read the Bible, the Bible is not a book that just gives these pat answers that are just easy and neat and tidy. The Bible actually gets under the surface and it doesn't give you what you think would be the obvious answer. And so when you look into the scriptures and you ask the question, what is wrong with the world? The Bible doesn't point to education or poverty or even morality or even religion. The Bible says it's much more serious than that. 
It's much deeper than that. It's much more subversive than those things. And so if you were to think about it, um, the illustration of what the Bible says what the main problem of our world is, is think of a tree. You have the roots and you have the fruits. You see, the Bible would say the reason that the world is in the state it is, that's the fruits of a greater problem, a greater sickness that is deep down under the soil of every human heart. And when you realize the root problem, all of the fruits make sense, but then you actually come to a place where you're not just looking at the world and trying to take out all the bad things that are happening, but you get to the heart of the problem. And so what we're going to do tonight is we think about the gift of God in the gospel. We think about God giving us himself. We're going to first ask the question is that if God is the infinite source of all goodness and joy, then why is the world the way it is? Um, We're going to ask the question, what is wrong with the world? Why is it the way it is if God really is as good as we say he is? And so uh, to help us, we're going to go to Acts chapter 17 uh, tonight. And so go ahead and open to Acts chapter 17. And to give you a little background, this is uh, the Apostle Paul. He's on, I believe, his second missionary journey. As he's going around, he's strengthening the churches that he had previously planted. And here he's coming to the great city of, of Athens, right, of Athens in, in Greece. And this, in Paul's day, was one of the epicenters of culture, of art, of intellectual pursuit. Uh, this was what New York is to many people in the United States, just the, the commerce and arts and culture. Athens was a centerpiece of the world. It wasn't the center of power. That was transferred over to Rome. But Greece and, and Athens, this still held a cultural, it was a cultural powerhouse. And Paul rolls on into Athens and he's by himself. He's waiting for Paul or for Timothy and for Silas to come and meet him. And so he's kind of going stag. He's going solo. And we come to him in this passage, walking through the streets of Athens. And in his experience in Athens, we are going to look at three things to help us get our answer of what's wrong with the world. We're going to see the problem. We're going to see the solution. And then we're going to see the decision. Okay, the problem, the solution, and the decision. And we're going to get to the root of the tree and not just the fruits. And so first, let's, uh, let's look at the, the problem. And we're going to read this in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. We read this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, so again, he's waiting for Silas and for Timothy to come meet him so they can carry on their missions work. While he was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him. Now stop right there. Have you been provoked lately? Right, we have a word for it today, triggered. Right, have you, you know, when you get triggered, right, you start to express uh, symptoms of microaggression, right, toward other uh, uh, people. Paul is in Athens and he begins to get triggered. Now, some people could just start to speculate, like, why, why does he start to get provoked? Like, some of you guys, as you came up here, even your travel from your, how long was the drive over here? Two and a half hours. So two and a half hours is enough time to get provoked, right? Maybe at the very beginning, you're like, okay, cool, like, two and a half hours, we're going to go up the mountain, it can get kind of dicey, I want to sit shotgun, and so you find the car you're in, and everybody's sitting there, and there's one seat left for you, Right? Back seat in the middle, feet on the hump, right? And that's just where you're at the entire time. And that is enough for you to get provoked. You're like, this is gonna be a terrible trip, right? If God loved me, why would he do this to me, 
right? And you get provoked, right? Maybe your roommate situation in the cabin, you know, is a cause for you to get uh, provoked here. Um, I think of other things. Um, you know, sometimes we can get provoked. Uh, it, you know, we have a word, hangry, right? If, we just, if we're just hungry, we get angry, right? And it's like, sometimes my wife and I, we'll get the wrong time. We won't, we won't get, the toddlers are going nuts and things, and we're both hungry, and we'll just look at each other, and we're just like, just time out. We might kill each other because we're starving, right? And so we'll just like time out, shelf something so we can get some food because we don't want to further provoke each other, right, in the midst of our dire starvation, right? You get indigestion. You can get provoked, right? The bed is too stiff at camp. You can get provoked. So Paul's walking through Athens, and he gets provoked within him. Why? Now, it's not because he had a bad burrito, right? It's not because he was, you know, backseat in the middle, feet on the hump. It's not because he was this uncultured, you know, person looking at all these intellectual people being like, that's not how we do it back at home, you know, kind of thing. He wasn't provoked by a new culture or a new people. We get the answer right here. Here's, here's what he was. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city of Athens was full of idols. Now that, that, that phrase, full of idols, it can actually be, it's not just like, oh, there was a lot of statues, but that the city was, was flooded with idols, that the idols, the, root, the idols have made their roots down in the city and there was nowhere Paul could look without seeing an idol or its results in the lives of the people of the city of Athens. Now, if you know anything about Greece, this probably doesn't surprise you. Right, Greek mythology, something that usually in our schooling we have to read about. We read about guys like Hercules and Hermes and Zeus and Apollos. And there's some great stories. There's some great, you know, uh, piercing truths that come out through those myths. And we know that in Athens, being the Greek culture of the world, there were statues of all of these gods everywhere. In, in, in fact, the entire pantheon of all the Greek gods was located in Athens. Just to give us a flavor, here's what one commentator says. He says, there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. And the Roman uh, uh, satirist hardly exaggerates when he says that it was easier to find a god in Athens than there was to find a man. There were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. And the, Parth the Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. So Paul's walking around the city and he sees all of these Greek idols and he gets triggered. Now at this time, I want us, this is a good opportunity for you and I to get transparent with one another, right? To get vulnerable, okay? I'm not gonna have you raise your hand because I know this is a sensitive issue, but I know that there's some, some people in here just this week, you didn't wanna do it, you clicked on the computer, you know you shouldn't have looked at it. You know you shouldn't have gone on the website. But you have been in this 10-year-long battle with the temptation of worshiping Diana, right? The goddess Diana, right, of the Greeks, right? I know that that's where a lot of you are at right now. You, you, you struggle in worshiping Diana. And I know some of you other guys, you're here, and, and you cannot keep yourself from sacrificing to Artemis, Right, the Greek, you guys are just blank-faced right now. I don't know if you're just holding, if, who's winning here. Uh, but the idea is, when we look at this and we're like, well, Paul had all these Greek gods, like, who cares? I don't worship Diana, I don't worship Artemis, I don't worship, that has nothing to do with my life, is what, what I'm saying. Sometimes you read the Old Testament and you see these gods like Baal, and Chemosh, and Molech, 
And none of us are like, oh, yeah, you know what? I have been worshiping Molech a little too much this week. You know what I mean? Or like, oh, you know what? Hercules, I've really been venerating at Hercules' tomb too often this week. We don't have that issue. And so it's easy for us to look at this being like, oh, that's just an issue of first century. Let me just move forward. But if you think that way, that's because you actually don't understand the concept of idolatry. When Paul looked in Athens, he saw it was filled with idols. And yes, there were Greek statues of Greek gods. But our land is filled with just as many idols as Athens was. You see, let's think about the definition of an idol. I think I have it up on the board or up on the screen for you guys. An idol can be dwindled down to this. is anything that you love, trust, or obey more than God. Anything you love, trust, or obey more than God. And notice that it's, it's anything. It can be anyone. It can be anything that you love, you desire, you treasure, you enjoy. You trust, something you find security and hope in. Or you obey, something you fear, you give your life over to and fear to, to go contrary to its desires. An idol is anything you love, trust, or obey more than than God. It can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing, right? So idolatry isn't just like, oh, heroin, that's an idol. You know, like, that's bad. Or, or premarital, extramarital, you know, sex. Like, those are bad. Like, idols can, yes, be sinful things, inherently sinful, but idols can also be good things. It can be things like family. It can be things like enjoying the applause of other people, the encouragement, the praise of other people. An idol can be a good thing or a bad thing, but the problem is that an idol, whether it's bad or it's good, it becomes a God thing in our life. An idol is a God substitutes, a God substitute. It's something we replace God for in our lives. You see, the Bible says that all things that God has created are good, and so food is good, uh, uh, relationships are good, uh, money is even a servant, and it's to be enjoyed and to, to be used in our lives. But the moment that God's good gifts become God's in our life is when idolatry begins to take place. You see, God's gifts are meant to be enjoyed. They're not meant to be worshipped. And so when you understand that that's what idolatry is, you go, okay, you know what, Athens isn't the only place that's full of idols, but so is Brentwood. So is California. So is America. Yes, our idols look different, but they're just as real. So in fact, let's actually think a little bit further. We're college, college age here, right? So about 18 to 25, give or take. It'd be interesting for you, and you're going to talk about this in your groups, but what would the pantheon of college idols look like? When you think about your classmates, when you think about your college campuses, what are things that college kids in our country are tempted to love, trust, or obey more than Jesus? And I know in your mind you are beginning to see, oh my goodness, our land is filled with idols as well. Think about this. We, I can think of a, a big one, the God of pleasure. All right, for college students, the God of pleasure. This is where we know college students are notorious for doggedly seeking out whatever makes them feel good. If it makes me feel good, then I'm going to go for it. This is why a lot of students will pick their colleges not on the academics or even the sports programs, but they'll pick their colleges because it's what? 
party school. If you think about the sex and the drugs and the alcohol and the party scene, or you think about young college guys or young college gals wanting to portray themselves as sexually attractive, the pleasure, the security, the value, the identity they find in worshiping the God of pleasure, it's an idol. Or I can think of not the God of pleasure, there's also the God of praise. This is usually people, they may not be found at the party scene because they want the praise of their parents and they don't want to make their parents feel, you know, uh, uh, disappointed in them. So they stay away from the party scene. They stay away from the drugs and the alcohol and and the sex and things like that. And they work to just get praise from people. And so they break their backs to get a GPA that makes their parents happy. Or they work their fingers to the bone to get that accolade from the coach or from the professor or from their friends. They spend countless hours on social media so that they can can develop a, a profile of their life that they want their friends to approve of. They want their friends to applaud. I know there were students in my high school ministry, and I think this is still a common practice on Instagram. They post a picture on Instagram, and if it did not get enough likes what would they do with it? They would delete it. Because it crushed them to know that there was a picture on their Instagram feed that wasn't applauded loud enough. And it haunted them. Made them stay up at night. They couldn't go back onto Instagram and see that it didn't have the basic amount of likes. So they took it out. Or I think of the God of protection. The idols of protection. You see, this is, is living and doing the college life to just gain a job to get me a, a well-paying career or just continuing to work and everything in my life revolves around this one idea of graduating with cum laude or summa cum laude or magnum cum laude honors so I can then get into that school and then get that kind of job and get that kind of money because then once I have that kind of life, I can finally be at peace. I'll be protected, I'll be safe, I'll be secure. You see, pleasure or praise or protection, we can go at these things in illicit, sinful ways or we can try and obey these gods through more legitimate, acceptable ways. But nonetheless, these I think are at least three huge idols in college life. And even think about, again, these idols as they're on the board, think of all that is done in college students' lives, in our lives, to serve these gods. Like, think about it. We oftentimes think Christians are the only ones that do things, you know, to serve their, their God, or religious people. We go to church and we pray and we do things like that, but there is just as much religious activity that happens to serve these gods as there is with other gods. Let me give you a couple examples. These are the kind of gods that we will reorder our life around. We'll change our schedule Right? We'll change our budgets you know, each week to serve these gods. I can think um, you know, to what Sunday morning is to a Christian, Friday night is to the one who serves the God of pleasure right? in college. Like nothing's going to get you know, in, away in the way of my partying you know, in the weekend. Um, or, or I can think also for someone who may you know, serve the idol of, of sports or entertainment. Uh, on Sunday morning, there's men who, who will not go to church, not because they say, I don't believe in God or Jesus, but because on Sunday, what is there? There's football. Right? And I'm like, dude, you have like TiVo and stuff. And they'll just look at me and be like, priorities, brother. Priorities, right? I can't watch a recorded game. That's just like not right. <laughs> and so we reorder our lives for them. Or also, these are idols that we trust them. We put our faith in them that they will give us meaning and joy. 
As a high school teacher and a professor, I see that there are students who will lose their minds if they get an A minus. They'll lose it. Because all of their, their idea of having a meaningful life or a life of joy or a life of value is only if there is 4.0 at least all the way down their GPA. And if they get anything less than that, their life falls apart at the seams because they've lost the reason for their meaning. They trust that the GPA will bring them that joy. When I get those grades or I get that honors, then I'm gonna experience the life that I want. Or if people actually think my life is as great as it seems on Instagram, then I'll feel happy like I want to feel. Or once I get into that school, or once I win that championship, or once I get that job, or marry that spouse, then I will finally arrive. I'll finally be happy. See, the reason I'm not happy now is because I don't have that. But once I have that, joy, meaning, peace will come. That's what we call faith, my friends. That's what we call trust. Or think about this. Um, even with these idols, people will evangelize. <laughs> for these idols. I remember in high school, when I became a believer, I, I, took, I did an about face, you know, it's called repentance, and so I turned away from the, uh, the, the, the party scene and the drugs and the alcohol and the girls, and I just started to just follow Jesus, and people didn't like that. And I had people, old friends and, and even, you know, uh, uh, acquaintances come to me, and they would try and persuade me back to the life of partying. It's, oh, it's so good. You just don't understand what you're missing. We've got these drinks and this person's house is now open. Oh man, this kind of thing. And one time I was trying to be persuaded back into the party scene and I went, oh my goodness, you're evangelizing to me right now. You're telling me about the God of pleasure and how great it is to serve the God of pleasure. And if I just follow this and if I drink those drinks and I have that party, then I'm gonna have a full and meaningful life. I almost feel like he was about to put his hand on me and just pray for me, you know, right there being like, okay, do you accept partying into your heart? You know, are we about, are you ready to go and do this? You know, to go bat, bat, baptize yourself at the beer pong table, you know, something like that. And I'm like, you're, this guy's evangelizing to me. Which for me as a young high schooler was like, why am I so afraid to evangelize back? This guy is ready to come and just, you know, shove his party God down my throat. Why am I so afraid to share Jesus? That's a different thought. That's a different sermon. But evangelizing, right? Sharing the good news of these gods with other people. Or, or think about this. These gods are also sacrificed too. Do you know how many hungovers are endured so that the God of pleasure could continue to be enjoyed? People know next morning's gonna be miserable. They know that they're not gonna remember most of their weekend, but that's a sacrifice they're willing to make. Or think about this. I know students who lose their hair and lose weight as a sacrifice to the God of academics. Now, there's, there's a difference between working hard right, in your school, because we should do everything unto the Lord, right, and work diligently to, to bring honor and praise to him. There's a difference, though, of, of diligently working and working, putting in the hours in school or in work. There's a difference between that and living for the grade, living for the GPA, living for the scholarship. And I have seen kids destroy their bodies at the altar of academic success. Or if we were to think about uh, sexuality. Do you know that 50% of all diagnosed STDs every single year, new, new people who are brand new, it, 
comes from college-age students. 50%. That one demographic every single year. And, and how many college students are just giving themselves to all kinds of sexual expressions and, and sexual, uh, just liberal expression, and they know the danger, but they're willing to sacrifice their health to continue to serve the God sexuality. You see, sometimes we can look at these old gods in the, in the Bible and think about these things like child sacrifice. You know, we look at Chemosh or Molech and Baal and these statues. They throw babies inside of these statues and burn them alive and the Mayans and the Incas. And we look at that and we say, that's so primitive, that's so disgusting, that's so gross. How could a culture ever become so depraved as to sacrifice their children for these sick and twisted gods? But today, millions and millions of unborn children have been sacrificed in the womb not because there's some extenuous circumstance with, with rape or some medical procedure. It was because people were using it as a form of birth control. You see, in order to serve the God of sexual pleasure, they're willing to sacrifice the children that are annoyingly the result of that. Child sacrifice is alive and well today. Yeah, it's not given to Molech or Chemosh, but it's children are sacrificed to the God of sexual appetite. You see, and so religious practices are given to these gods in the same way that Christians worship Jesus or Muslims worship Allah. Their lives are changed around these gods. Their budgets are changed around these gods. Their calendars are changed around these gods. Here's the point I just want you to see. Paul looked in Athens and he saw Athens was what? Full of idols. If Paul walked around 2018 Brentwood today, he would see the same thing. In fact, I remember one time a, a missionary had come over to the, the United States from, uh, she, was, she was from um, India where Hinduism is plentiful and Hinduism is polytheistic religion, millions and millions of gods, sacrifices, statues, things like that. And uh, this was a Christian woman who had come to the United States and as she left there, she was asked, how did you enjoy the United States? And she says, man, I... It's, it's a cool country, but there's just so many idols here. It kind of made me sick. She was able to see something that sometimes we may ourselves may not be able to see. Now, here at this point, we want to ask the question, why is idolatry so bad? Well, you know, some of you may be thinking, hey, we kind of live in a pluralistic age. Why can't we just let people worship their idols? Why do we have to make such a big deal about it? Why do we want to rail against idolatry? Um, when Paul is, why is he provoked? Why is he triggered? Why does he get so worked up? Why can't he just take a chill pill? Why can't he just coexist? Right? Why can't he just, you know, mellow out? And there's three reasons, and there's two I'm going to give you now. One we'll save for the next um, section. <clears throat> but there's two reasons why idolatry is such a big deal, according to the scriptures, why Paul isn't just kind of like, oh, this is pretty interesting. It's some nice art for those statues. He looks at those statues, and he gets provoked. Here's the first reason. Idolatry is a huge deal because idols lay under all we think, feel, and do. Our idols control us. They control us. Let me explain this just for a moment here. Whatever it is that you love, trust, or obey more than anything else, whatever is at the center of your life, if, you're, if, you're, if your life is a universe, whatever the sun is, that all the planets of your life revolve around, that controls you. It controls everything in your life. You're motivated to gain that thing. That's the reason you get up in the morning is so you can get that thing. You are terrified to lose that thing. 
and you will give up your entire life to maintain and hold on to whatever idol has taken the place of Christ in your life. You see this in the Bible in all kinds of places. There's two specific places I think it's pretty powerful. One is just think the Ten Commandments. So we have the Ten Commandments. There's ten of them, right? Um, Just in case you didn't know that. Uh, The first commandment is what? Yeah, have no other gods before me. Worship, right, me alone. Worship the Lord, your God alone. I'm the God that saved you. Have no other gods before me. I'm the one that deserves. Martin Luther, when he talks about the Ten Commandments and his, uh, his catechism to raise up new believers and young children, he makes this brilliant point where he says this. You cannot break commandments two through ten without first breaking commandment number one. Every time you and I sin against God is because at that point we have chosen another God to serve. We've distrusted God's promise and we've accepted the promise of some other idol in our life. We've disobeyed God's command because we wanted to obey the, uh, a command of another idol that we had in our life. We may in that instant make an about face term and go, what am I doing? Throw that God out. But you cannot break commandments two through 10 without first and always breaking commandment Number one, what this shows us is this, all of our thinking, our feeling, and our doing is going to be, if it's going to be changed, we must first change what we worship. Second thing that illustrates this in the Bible is when you look at the ministry of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, you see them do something that is striking if if you're paying attention. Like for instance, in the book of Acts, we'll use that. When the apostles are going around and they're planting churches, they're preaching the gospel, they're calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus, did you notice when they go from city to city, they don't go to cities and look around and go, oh, man, oh, y'all are having sex with each other. Stop that, right? Stop having sex with each other. Only your wives. Don't do it with the animals. Don't do it with the temple prostitutes. Stop. They don't just come and start wagging their finger and, finger and saying, hey, get your sexual sin you know, straight away. They don't come into cities going, hey, you're really treating the poor terribly here. Like, you need to start, you know, really being more generous and and caring for the poor. They don't say, hey, you need to start being nice to each other. When the apostles walk into, when they roll into any city, they don't talk about the behavior of that city. They don't talk about the the, the philosophies or the practices of that city. You know what the apostles do? When they come into every single city, what do they do? Jesus alone is the true God. Worship him. They don't talk about the behavior of the city. They don't talk about the attitude of the city. They don't talk about the corruption or the crimes or the justice things that are happening. All the apostles do when they come from city to city is they preach Jesus Christ as the risen king and the only true God. Now, is that because the apostles don't care about sin? No. Is it because they don't care about uh, uh, caring for others and living the life? No, but the apostles know this, that when people throw away their idols and they love, trust, and worship Jesus as supreme in their life, all the other stuff figures itself out. Everything else follows that. And so they come in and they preach Jesus. It's simple. Idolatry, come back to our initial illustration, idolatry is the root of all of the world's sorrow. You and I have been created to enjoy God is the supreme treasure. In the moment we replace him with something else, all hell breaks loose in our life and in our world. You see, even sin itself 
before we do wrong, it's only because we first worship wrong. You see, this is, this is key. When what you think, what you feel, and what you do is controlled and determined by one question, what do you worship? Everything else follows that. And this is why in youth ministry, it's easy for youth ministries to you know, have a good intention. We don't want our kids you know, to be breaking commandments. We don't want them to be sinful. We don't want them to you know, be ditching school. We don't want them to be drinking alcohol and doing drugs and breaking commandments. And so a lot of youth groups, in order to stop this kind of unhealthy living for their kids, what, what do they do? They bring the kids in and they say things like, hey, you need, to be, you need to be good. You need to be more moral. You need to be, you know, behave better. You need to not go to those parties and they'll, they'll try and bring kids in and they'll make them feel different things. They'll make them try and act in different ways. And that may change the way kids act on the outside, but then what ends up happening is we get youth groups that are filled with pseudo-moral pagans. <laughs> People who act like Christians with, any, with zero interest in Christ himself. You see, that's one of the reasons I'm so thankful for your guys' church. When I was here with the high school last week, and, and even just, you know, as I just, the little that I've been able to interact with your church is I see that your church has these priorities in place. They understand that it's only when someone has given their life over to Christ as the supreme treasure do they know that then transformation happens. Only then, because what you worship controls you. Idolatry is also bad, because not only your idols will control you, but your idols are cruel. They're cruel. And this one, I think, hits close to home for a lot of us. This is the, the, the reality. All of the idols of, your, of this world will break your heart. They'll break your heart. There's a, a column by a lady named Cynthia uh, um, Heimel from the Village Voice. This is back in the 90s. And she wrote, uh, she lives in, in New York City, and she had a lot of people that she knew. They were up-and-coming actors and Broadway people, and they actually made it big. They, they fulfilled the dream, and they became big celebrities. And they're actually well-known celebrities. And she, in this article, talks about the change that happened when these people actually got the dream that they had been yearning for. And she writes this. I pity celebrities. No, I really do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they worked and they pushed. In the morning after, each of them became famous. They wanted to take an overdose. So again, these are people that did everything they could to become famous, and then they finally became famous, and they just wanted to end it all. She goes further and explains, because that giant thing they were striving for, that something that was going to make everything else okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, that thing had happened and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I think that God wants to, when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and giggles merrily when you realize that you want to kill yourself. Now, she's not a believer, and that's not how God uh, feels, obviously, but there's actually a biblical truth that's connected to this. It's in Romans chapter one, and, and it essentially says this. One of the worst things that God can give the world is exactly what it asks for. Because when we finally get the thing that we have been striving to maintain, striving to obtain, when we finally get it, we realize that it didn't give us what we thought it would. 
we realized that it was empty, that it was unfulfilling, that it was unsatisfying. And she says, these celebrities finally became celebrities and they were still them. Nothing changed because our idols are cruel. They'll break our hearts. So before we move out of this point in our problem, and I'm going to sp- spend most of the time on this, so don't think like, man, you still got all these other points. This is one of the, the key issues here that we're going to see. But before we move from this point, we can't right now, some of you guys may be thinking, oh, you know what? You know who really needs to hear this sermon? Susie, right? Because Susie, she's an idolater, right? Big time idolater, right? And you're thinking about all those people in your life who you think, oh, this person worships that. Put all those out of your mind right now and ask the question, what about you? What are you tempted to love, trust, and worship more than Christ? What's an idol that may be erected in your heart tonight? There's probably two or three or four or dozens. There's a letter that a pastor wrote assuming the position of an idol, and it's a personal letter from an idol to you. And uh, it, it goes like this. I have it on the board. Hello, I'm an idol. Don't be afraid. It's just me. I noticed that you're turned off by my name, Idol. It's okay, I get that a lot. Allow me to rename myself. I'm your family, your bank account, your sex life, the people who accept you, your career, your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about while you drive on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn when you need comfort. I'm what your future cannot live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the center of the universe. You look up to those who have me. You look down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me. You're furious at those who keep me from you. When I make a suggestion to you, you, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. No, I cannot see you or hear you or speak back to you, but that's what you like about me. No, I am never quite what you think I am, but that's why you keep coming back. And no, I don't love you, but I'm there for you whenever you need me. What am I? I think you know by now. You tell me. You see, friends, tonight, I think the Lord is calling each and every one of us, even if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you and I have idols that we must fight against every single day. What are the idols that are competing for Christ's spot in your heart? Are they controlling you? Are you giving yourself to them because they, my friends, are cruel? See, now when Paul sees this, he sees it's full of idols, and look what he does in response. Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. So he goes to the the synagogue to open the scriptures to talk with people who already at least have some understanding of the scriptures, but he doesn't just go there. He also goes to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be here. Now at this point, um, uh, there was some interest that he began to spark, and we see Uh, In verse 18, his talking to people in the marketplace sparks interest and it says, and some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Aragopagus and said, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know and therefore what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except hearing or telling or telling or hearing something new. So the philosophers catch wind of this new thing about Jesus and the resurrection. They say, hey, come and tell us. And so they give him the floor. The spotlight hits on him. And that brings us to now the second part, which is the solution. And this is going to go quicker than the, the, the first one. Paul now we don't just get an overview. He told them about Jesus. We actually get a glimpse of what he said to these people who were controlled by their idols. And we see this, and he gives us here now the solution. Verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the air of Gopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now he's not just tooting their horn. They were religious because, remember, religion is about what you do. It's things like prayer and reading, right? And, and fasting, it's religious practices. Religions are things that you do. So religion can be done to an idol or religion can be done to the true God. And so Paul says, you guys are very religious. Your religion game is strong, right? He's trying to get on common ground with them. He's trying to, he, he's being kind, he's being gentle. He's not just being like, oh, y'all are just pagans. He's trying to get on their level because he wants to introduce them to the God who will give them life. So he goes, I perceive you're very religious. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he goes, you guys have this idol. You're so religious. You're like, hey, there's probably some God we forgot about. Let's just make a statue to that God, right? And so they worship that and they just kind of like, because they didn't want to upset that God. And he goes, oh yeah, that unknown God, you guys, I know. Let me tell you about him. And here at this point, very briefly, Paul doesn't say everything there is to say about the God of scripture, about the the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. But he gives four life-changing truths about why the true God is so much greater and the idols that filled their land. And so let's look really briefly. The first thing he shows them, verse 24, is that the true God is the only creator of all things. Look what he says in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So he knows that their idea of gods, they kind of had gods who were, they, they were over areas of turf, you know, so you had Ares, the god of war, and, and Artemis, the god of fertility and love, and Apollos, the god of art and culture. And they had kind of these things that they were gods over, and they would give gifts to men. A lot of times they even had geographical locations that they kind of dwelled in. And he says, hey, number one, let me tell you about the sun. He is the creator of all things. He doesn't just have a square of land that he belongs at. He is the creator of all the world, the Lord of all the world, which this, I think, is an amazing truth for us to think about because you and I are tempted to worship what? An idol is essentially a created thing. And here Paul is subtly pushing back against this idea of idolatry, and he's saying this, why would you worship the created thing instead of the creator? Why would you choose a created thing instead of the creator. Because this life, is this world filled with good things? Amen? Like in and out Burger, right? Like that's proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy, right? Things like a warm jacket, like friend, this world is filled with good gifts and the Bible says that all things that God has created are good and are to be received with thanksgiving. But here's the beautiful thing that believers have is that every good created thing of this world is simply an appetizer that prepares us for the greater good that is found in the God who created it. 
And so Christians are the great kind of, this great position where we get our cake and we get to eat it too. We get to enjoy God's gifts and we get to worship the God who's given them. You see, all of the gifts of this world, all of God's creations, listen, they're invitations to a greater joy. And so Christians don't need to kind of walk, walk around this world being like, don't like creation too much. No, enjoy creation to its fullest, but brothers and sisters, don't worship it. Enjoy God's gifts. Don't worship them. See them and receive them as good things. Don't turn them into God things because God alone is the creator of all things. And so he's saying, this God is the creator of all things, and so why would you choose created idol over the creator of all things? Number two, God is the only sustainer of all things. Look what he says in verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, idols, are, they only live when they're served. The idols of this world, think about it, they are not fountains, they are drains. They take, they take, they take, they take, and they will never give back, at least in the way that they promise. They cannot be, they're not self-sustaining. But the God of Scripture, it's one of the characteristics of God, it's called the aseity of God. It's, the, it's that God has abundant life in himself and he needs nothing outside of himself. And so when you come to the God of Scripture, you do not come to him giving him something he doesn't need. He calls you to himself so that in him you can have something that you need. You see, God is not a drain that takes from you. He is the sustainer that gives you everything you have. And again, Paul is talking to the Athenians and he goes, the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. Why serve something that will steal from you? when you can worship the God who has already given you everything you have and promises you an infinite more. This, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. Number three, the ruler of all things. Look what he says in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So he's giving this picture that this isn't just a powerful God. He is the all-powerful God. Everybody and everything in the world is under his providential sovereign control. For what purpose? Verse 27, that they, that these people should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets, Athenians, have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And so Paul's saying, look here, Athenians, your idols are attractive because they make you feel like you have a sense of control. They make you feel like you're in the driver's seat. But the cruel thing that they do is they promise you power and then they enslave you. They promise you pleasure and then they make you miserable. You see, the people who are, they, they, they worship academics, they always feel like they're idiots. The, the people who seek out pleasure never actually experience it very long. The people who yearn for the praise of other people, even when they get the praise of other people, it just doesn't satisfy them like it used to, and they continue to yearn for more. And so idols come to us saying, hey, if you have me, then you're the king of the universe, baby. You get to, you're in control. You're in power. But in reality, when we give ourselves over to idols, we don't sit on a throne, but we sit in a cell. They chain us. They enslave us. They make us miserable. 
They promise power. They make us weak. And Paul here says, the God of the world is the ruler of all things. He's in control of all things, people, places, and he uses his power not to oppress us, not to crush us, not to slam us down, but he uses his power that we may what? Seek him. And he's not a God who is far off and distant that we have to go to some mountain or some temple to go find him, but Paul says he, we live and move and have our being in him. Why choose the ruled over the ruler? He's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the ruler. Number four, and he's the only savior of all. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. He's saying, stop this silliness about worshiping created man-made things. Verse 30, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent of their idolatry because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this truth, he's given assurance to all people by raising him from the dead. So Paul brings it to Jesus. Now here we get a summary form. You can't talk about the resurrection unless you first talk about what? The cross, because resurrection doesn't happen if he first didn't die. So he brings it to the gospel of Jesus and he tells them this. Your idols promise to save you. They promise they'll give you happiness and meaning and they'll deliver you. They'll take away your guilt. They'll take away your shame. They'll take away your boredom. They'll take away your feelings of of meaningless life and valueless life and they keep promising you. If you have me, I'm going to give it to you. If you have me, I'm going to give it to you. I promise you'll be happy. But the thing that happens is the more we drink of idols, the thirstier we get. We're empty. But God doesn't sit idly back waiting for us to come to him. He doesn't sit and make empty promises. Paul says here, the true God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become our savior to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again from the dead so that we can be sure that he's the real deal. We can be sure he's the real deal and that he will make good on his promises. You see, Paul comes to the Athenians and he goes, you know what, I'm not just saying, hey, choose my idol over your idol because my idol's better. He goes, no, choose this God because this God rose from the dead, period. This God actually is alive. Yeah, and then he died, but then he became alive again. And now he rules as the king over the world. He points to the God of the Bible and he says, your idols promise to save you, this God actually can. He actually can. And so again, we look, we look at this and we have to ask the question, why is Paul provoked? Idols control you, idols are cruel. Paul loves the people, he wants to do something about it. But here's the other reason we need to see after this speech. Paul is provoked because Paul is jealous for the honor of God in the lives of other people. Have you ever been jealous for the honor of something in your life? Like, for instance, are there parks and recreation people in here? Okay, parks and rec people. Are there office people in here? Right, the office, right? Okay, which one's better? Fight, right? Have you ever had that conversation? You get, that gets pretty dicey. You're like, no, no, parks, no, it's, it's all about Dwight, or it's all about, you know, and, and it'll gotcha, and why do we get intense even over a show like that? Because we're jealous for the honor of what we think is the better show. 
right? And we want to we prove that it's the better show. So we actually we get a little heated. We'll actually, we'll get into it. Or if you're like a football fan, football fans can get, you know, very, you know, get, get jealous for the glory of their team, right? They'll, they'll yell and they'll scream and they'll punch and they'll, they'll stab. Well, only if you're a Raiders fan. Um, <laughs> but they'll get jealous for the honor of their team because the more you love something, the more you're jealous that it is honored rightly. We understand that? Uh, think, think about it like with, with my child, with my children. I want my children to be honored rightly. And so if someone just comes and starts saying terrible things about my children, it's going to make me angry if they're, if they're not well-placed because I am jealous that they would be treated and honored rightly. Now, it's not a deficiency of my love. It's a, it's a, it's a result of my love. And so Paul looks around in Athens and he sees all of these idols and he's looked and he gets triggered, not because he's a cultural brute, not because he is, uh, he, he's arrogant and just thinks his way is the best way, but because Paul is so enamored with the treasure that is Jesus Christ. He is so amazed by the glory of the risen son of God. He looks at all of these idols, getting all of this glory from all of these people. And he says, that's not the way it should be. Jesus alone deserves this kind of trust, love, sacrifice, obedience, and honor. That is for him and for him alone. And so Paul is actually jealous for the glory of Jesus amongst these people. There's a missionary to the Muslims that uh, typifies this perfectly when he said this, Henry Martin. He said, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were always to be dishonored. Paul's jealous for the glory of Jesus. You see, this word provoked is actually used of God in the Old Testament. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. Now, that's not a bad thing because jealousy can be a bad thing when it's sinfully applied, but it can be a, a, a beautiful thing like when a husband is jealous for the faithful love of his wife. Could you imagine if you just saw... Um, you know, a, a man's wife flirting with other women, or sorry, a, a man's wife flirting. That's, that's something that could happen, but say, let's just say she was flirting with other men and the husband's just kind of like sitting there watching being like, hey, I'm over here when you're done. And you would not look at that husband going, oh, how loving is he? Look at him. He just lets her flirt with every guy in the room. He's so loving. He's so, you look at that and you say, bro, what's wrong with you? Don't you love your wife? Aren't you jealous for her love? And we get this picture of the God of the Bible who's not a cruel God, he's a loving God. And when he sees his people giving their worship over to other things, he doesn't sit by going, oh, okay, yay, when you're done, hey, I'll be over here, it's fine, I don't care. He looks at it and he gets jealous for the honor and the glory that is due to him alone. Not because his love is deficient, but because it is thunderous. God's the kind of husband that hates when his wife flirts with other gods. And Paul is reflecting that kind of jealousy in this passage. And so before you scoff at Paul, going, oh, Paul's jealous, I just want you all to know this. You share Paul's jealousy, it just may be for something else in your life. And is whatever you're jealous for is good is what Paul's jealous for. In ending, here's what I just want you to do. I want us to ask this question. Why are we choosing to worship these idols instead of Christ? When we have a God who is the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, and the savior of all the world, why in God's name would we ever choose an idol over Christ? There was an article about um, 
some firefighters in Britain who there was a, a fire that happened in a farmhouse and they came in and they saved a lot of the farm animals. They saved a whole thing of pigs, right? They saved them. It's like, it was adorable pictures. These own little, you know, like little, like, uh, uh, little oinkers, you know, little piglets, you know. And, like, there's these pictures. And it's like firefighters save them. They're just like oh, these big burly firefighters and, like, these little pigs. They're like, <laughs> just like so. And you're like, oh, this is adorable. And then the article takes a turn. It says, and then, about a year later, uh, the firefighters have these boxes show up to their fire station. And it's a gift from the farmer. And uh, to say thank you for saving all of my animals, for saving my farm, for putting your neck. And it was boxes of pork sausage. You see, the farm was a pig butchery, right? And they saved those pigs only that later those pigs would be fattened up and live and then be butchered and eaten. And I read that and I said, this is a twisted article. This is, this is really funny, and then, and then I had a woe moment, and I said, this is a perfect picture of the idols we give our lives to. They come swooping in our lives, and they promise to save us. They may give us temporary joy and satisfaction, feelings of salvation, but in the end, what do they do to us? They devour us. You see, I want you to compare the hungry firefighters that are our idols with the good shepherd that is our Jesus. See, like our brother read at the very beginning, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will eat you. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and eat you like pork sausage. But I've come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. My friends, your idols will fail you. Jesus won't. Your idols promise freedom, but they'll bring slavery. Jesus promises slavery to him and promises that it's freedom. Your idols will never forgive you when you fail them. Jesus does. Your idols will never save you. Jesus does. Your idols will never satisfy you. Jesus does. Your idols will demand that you live and you die for them. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he has lived and died for you so that you could have him. Just as we end, what's the response? This is the response we see, verse 31, 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some of you in here, you may not be doing it out loud, thank you, but maybe in your hearts you're just mocking. You're going, this is such a load of rubbish. If you're British, you'd probably definitely say it that way. <laughs> and you may be saying, you know what, I, I can't have what you Christians have. I can't have that kind of faith. It's cool that you have it, I just can't be there. You need to realize something, you already have that kind of faith, it's just in something else other than Jesus. You love, trust, and obey some other idol. But what I want to challenge you, if, if you're a non-believer, uh, thank you for being here. I'm glad you're here. I, 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 but I want, if you're a non-believer or you, you're not sure you're a Christian, I want to ask you this. Why would you love, trust, and obey something else instead of Jesus? Has any other idol made these promises, proven this track record? But here's the kicker. No other idol has risen from the dead to validate that those promises will be fulfilled. And so... You may be denying right now, but I want to challenge you with this thought. This room is only filled with one kind of person, a worshiper. Some of you worship Jesus, some of you worship something else. Right? But then not only some denied, 
Verse 32, some also delayed. But others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out for their midst. Do you know where in the Bible they, they, Paul goes back and talks to them? Never. You see, sometimes we're like, you know, you're maybe close enough to church. We're like, you know what, this is really good. I need to think about this at some point in my life. I need to really get my act together. Just, just not right now. Just not right now. You're like the Athenians. And just like the Athenians, you'll probably never come back around to it. And so for those who want to delay, you may just be thinking, I want to delay. I pray this week that God would graciously hunt you down. I pray that this week that God would, would be like Liam Nielsen, right? And he will, he will find you and he will give you life. <laughs> but in all, in, all, in all honesty, I pray this weekend that you would actually take seriously the claims of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take seriously what he says about your sin and your deserved judgment and take seriously what he says about your salvation through trusting in him. I pray that he would be on your mind when you're playing, when you're eating, when you're hanging out, when you're sleeping, because there's nothing more important than what or who you worship, and there is no other God that is more worthy than Jesus Christ. And then, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, <laughs> the, Are, the um, Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. I love that a woman named Dionysus, which is actually one of the Greek gods, puts her faith in Jesus Christ. So friends, I have spoken way over time tonight, I promise. The next sermons will not be this long. But I am passionate to just level with you. Say the reason the world is the way it is is because what the world has chosen to worship. And it's reaping the benefits of its gods. But the God of all creation has come to give you life. Jesus is better. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.